Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Devlina Chakraborty. And in case you haven't noticed, we like themes. And this is not going to be an exclamation-themed episode. But we also like royal pretenders. They seem to to come up a lot. Um, especially we like them when they're not just pretending to to claim a throne, but actually pretending to be someone else. A double pretend. Yeah, a double pretend. Imposters as well as pretenders. And today we're going to be talking about a 10-year-old boy named Lambert Simnel. And because he was a pretender and an imposter, an imposter two times over, you probably haven't ever heard of him before. Yeah, but the interesting thing about him is that for a brief time, he had this cooked up claim that threatened the security of the Tudor line, major line in English history. But just getting going at this point. But just getting going at this point. And his defeat marked the true end of the War of the Roses. Yeah, it's not all over on Bosworth Field, like you might think. Um, but because it's also almost St. Patrick's Day, we've picked a subject that has a little bit of um, Irish influence on it, too. Obviously, the story ends well for the Tudors, not for the Irish. But it's still interesting to learn a little bit about um, this history between the two countries and find out why Ireland's chancellor would throw his weight behind 
a claimant who is obviously a fraud, it's it's going to be a, a curious question to answer, I think. It definitely will. But first, let's take a little look at the War of the Roses. Now, we get requests all the time to talk about the War of the Roses, and this is not going to be that episode, so don't get too excited if you're one of those fans. But we are going to refresh your memory just a little bit about what happened. So the wars took place between the houses of York and Lancaster in the 1400s, and a, it, what happened was a York claimant eventually came out on top, Edward IV. Yeah, and I mean, there were a few bumps in the road, even once Edward IV was was the guy who, who won in the end. He had to execute his own brother, supposedly in a vat of wine. That's the old Shakespeare story, apparently. <laughs> what a way to go. Yeah, indeed. Um, that was George Duke of Clarence, and that's an important name to remember. We're not going to toss in. There are a lot of names here, and we're going to only mention the ones that are important, but that's one to, to remember. Um, but aside from having to execute his own brother, Edward IV was a really popular king. He was a very good fighter. He was never defeated on the field, so it seemed like things were going pretty well for, for his line. Plus, he had two sons. Unfortunately for the House of York, Edward up and died before those two sons came of age. Yeah, and the rest of it you probably know from Shakespeare. Edward IV's older brother comes in at this point, Richard, the Duke of Gloucester, and he locks the boys in the Tower of London. So if you've ever visited the Tower of London or you're from England, you might have heard this story as well. At this point, Richard declares himself King Richard III, and the boys disappear. That's, That's another one of your like most requested suggestions. What happened to the the princes in the tower? Yeah, it's one of those things that I think really makes the Tower of London an exciting sight to see, even though it's kind of a really touristy site. It's, yeah. uh, it's fascinating for those scary stories you hear. But that was in 1483 and is one of history's great mysteries. Yeah, and not too long after that, though, Richard III was defeated in the Battle of Bosworth Field by this new guy, this kind of random guy. I mean, that's not a very historical way to put it, but essentially what he was, Henry Tudor. Henry Tudor, victorious, makes himself Henry VII. And it's a really big deal because it's not just the end of the Wars of the Roses and that York-Lancaster battle that had been going on for so long. It also ends the Plantagenet house, which uh, Katie and I did an episode ages ago on Eleanor of Aquitaine. So we know that those that family has been around and in power for a very long time. Definitely. And Henry's own claim, though, was pretty tenuous at that point. According to British Heritage, in 1485, there were actually 29 living people who were more qualified than he to to take the throne. Who had better claims. Right. But he's a pretty shrewd guy. And so he tries to solidify his claim by marrying a York girl, the daughter of Edward IV, the sister of the princes of the tower. Yeah. And, um, you know, that that probably helps get a certain amount of support, but there's still plenty of people who don't want him to be king, especially loyal Yorkists. And that's where our story stands in 1486 when we have this pretender come in. And the interesting thing about 10-year-old Lambert Simnel is that he's so much of a pawn in his own story that we can't really start talking about it without talking about some other people first. It kind of reminded me of 
like boy bands or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, you get the concept first and then you, you cast the parts. Then you cast the parts, yeah. So um, we'll give you a little background on this particular Menudo scenario yeah. that's happening here. <laughs> the Viscount Lovell, who is a crony of Richard and a Yorkist, he's the first to stage a major uprising against Henry VII just months after his coronation. When this fails, though, he ends up going to Oxford and continues to scheme and look for ways. So he's one person that's involved in this. The other one is John de la Pole. He meets John de la Pole, who is Earl of Lincoln, and John de la Pole is actually a real claimant to the throne. He was the nephew of Richard III and Edward IV and is likely even Richard's heir. Yeah, he's one of their sister's sons. So definitely a I mean, it has a better claim than Henry Tudor, um, but he seems like he would be the head of this rebellion, somebody who's so closely related to the former king. Um, but surprisingly, he does not take up the pretender business for himself. It is a very dangerous job, especially if you are the figurehead of the rebellion. So Lincoln and Lovell conspire with this Oxford priest named Richard Simmons, uh, kind of not the one you've heard of, <laughs> not the one you heard not of, the I, exercise guy. I feel like we should start a list of um, people who are more famous today. <laughs> they make random appearances in history. <laughs> Always a little bit awkward. Anyways, they conspire with this Oxford priest who presents one of his students as none other but Richard, Duke of York. Richard, Duke of York, is one of the little tower boys. So. Surprise, surprise, it seems he's alive and in the form of this Oxford student, alive and well. Of course, it's really Lambert Simnel, who just happens to be a handsome enough boy, the son of an Oxford tradesman. Um, he's said to look kind of like the younger Tower Prince. But, I mean, who knows? How many people would really even know what those two boys looked like? He just... He has the bearing of a prince and the manners, and he's been trained to, to play the part. So by late 1486, these co- two conspirators, Lincoln and Lovell, they're sure that their boy will not, quote, step out of character, as Karen Kenyon wrote. They've also gotten some funding from Lincoln's aunt, who is Margaret of Burgundy, and she's really eager to see the Yorks return to power, even if they do it through the rise of this pretender boy, Lambert Simnel. Yeah, I mean, she would, I'm sure, rather see one of her own family members on the throne. But that's something to keep in mind with this whole random pretender business, too, that if the rebellion was successful, I'm pretty sure that somebody who was actually from the York family would end up on the throne and poor little Lambert would be disappeared Yeah, who knows what they told him at the time, but it probably wouldn't have turned out so well for him in the end. Yeah, but anyways, this is also where Ireland becomes important. We're not going to neglect this country because this is kind of our St. Patrick's Day episode. So the conspirators decide that Ireland will be the Yorkist base for the plot, and that's where they, they head off to. And we have to ask, why Ireland? Why would Ireland be the head for for this rebellion? Um, There was a lot of York support in Ireland, surprisingly strong support, especially from so-called home rule Anglo-Irish lords. And it was partly because members of the York family had served as lieutenants in Ireland for 30 years and had been pretty popular, at least with some people while they were there. And one of them was even lieutenant when the parliament at Dro 
Aouda declared Ireland independent. So they had, they had fond memories of the York family. They felt like they had been treated well enough. And the Tudors were an unknown quantity at this point. Yeah, and another thing to note is that they were especially big fans of that wine-drowned Duke of Clarence, who we mentioned earlier. He was born in Dublin and considered, quote, countryman and protector of the land. So this brings us to kind of the next stage in our pretender conspiracy. And Irish support actually increases at this point because Lambert Simnel suddenly ceases being the prince in the tower, his first faux identity, and becomes the 12-year-old Edward Plantagenet, Earl of Warwick, the deceased Duke of Clarence's son and nephew of Edward IV and Richard III. So, I mean, this, <laughs> this part makes it pretty unbelievable, I'd say. Not only is this random boy from Oxford pretending to be one prince, now he's pretending to be an earl who is actually still alive. I'm just thinking about this poor little 10-year-old boy and how confused he has to be. I know. He, in a, I mean, apparently he would he would amuse people by recounting stories of his father's court. And you can just imagine all his handlers saying, like, no, don't tell those stories anymore. Yeah. That's, like, the wrong background. You need to change the whole thing. Flip the switch. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, it would be disturbing, I'm sure. Um, but the this whole switcheroo, I mean, there is a reason behind it, and it comes out of false news in early 1487 that the Earl of Warwick had been imprisoned in the tower and killed, which wouldn't be that surprising anyways. He is uh, probably one of the Yorks with the strongest claim to the throne at this point. So Lincoln and Lovell essentially take a gamble, and they decide that if Warwick really has been killed, and if Henry VII is, is called upon to produce him, and he can't, he'll be exposed as a murderer, or people will think that Simnel is the real deal. And, you know, maybe even if Henry VII can produce Warwick, people will be so confused about what's going on, they might not know who's who. And that's exactly what happens. Henry VII gets legitimately concerned, and he takes Warwick out of wherever he's keeping him, sort of parades him around London, even takes the poor kid to church with him, (laughs) you know, finally, like, showing him Very wholesome. Yeah. And it's too late, though, because by that point, people are confused. They're not sure which of these boys is the real thing. And everyone's everyone's just mixed up. That's what happens when pretenders are also imposters. So true. So meanwhile, the Irish are only continuing to build up the young Simnel. So they're kind of playing on this whole confusion. Most notably, the Lord Deputy of Ireland, Gerald Fitzgerald, Earl of Kildare, and his brother, Thomas Fitzgerald, Chancellor of Ireland. They're working on this and building up this story a bit. So with such strong Irish support, Kildare sets up a coronation. And I mean, you probably didn't expect it to get quite this far, but it happens May 24th, 1487, Simnel is crowned at Dublin's Christchurch Cathedral, and he's accepted as king everywhere in Ireland but Waterford, and that's of note, too. He's accepted as king of England and Ireland, not king of England and lord of Ireland, as as he would traditionally have been. Um, but it, it's kind of sad, too, and it reminds us again that he's just this little boy. He's so tiny that he has to wear a crown off the Statue of the Virgin, and afterwards the mayor carries him through Dublin on his shoulders to a big feast at Dublin Castle. He's probably thinking, oh, he must have been really good at pretending, and it's all paying off. Yeah, he, he might be having a good time at this point, but... 
it makes you wonder, did people really buy into these switcheroos and shady claims that were going on, especially the Irish? Did they really buy into everything that was going on? I mean, you just said it. Everybody in Ireland, except for the people in Waterford, pretty much accepted him. So, (laughs) yeah, they were the holdouts. Um, So let's take a look at it. Well, most historians think, no, the, the Irish didn't really buy into it. It simply suited the purposes of the Irish Yorkists to play such a major role in this promising uprising. Yeah, you have this boy king, and if he's successful, and you help put him on the throne, well then hopefully you get treated a little better than than you might under the, the current ruler. Yeah, there is one historian, though, at least, uh, Jeremy Potter, who differs with this. He says Kildare respected Lincoln and Lovell's word, and since they swore the boy was the son of the Duke of Clarence, he might have actually really believed them. Yeah, so I mean, you know, I guess I can see either way, but at least for the majority of people, I I can't imagine that they would seriously believe this claim. You'd have to You'd have to pay lip service to it. You know, you'd have to, you'd have to go out and really say you did believe it was the boy and he should be king, but I don't know. I, I think it seemed pretty obvious he was a puppet. Yeah, it seems like a stretch. Who knows? Maybe it was a little bit of a mixture. Yeah. Some did, some didn't. But, But, you know, regardless, Ireland does come out in support of the boy, it, it throws its lot in with the boy, and the rebel makeup that sails for the Lancashire coast is, um, it seems pretty impressive, initially at least. Yeah, 2,000 German mercenaries under the command of Swiss Captain Martin Schwartz, paid for by Margaret, Duchess of Burgundy, of course. She's the money behind this She's whole the money bags. And there were up to 5,000 Irish, but mostly rabble. Yeah, just guys who have joined up for various reasons. Um, they're joined in England by more rebels and a few Scottish mercenaries. But this is where the first cracks start to show. Lincoln was definitely assuming that more people in England would would join up, would come to, to support the York cause against the Tudors. But it seemed like the English were pretty leery of this whole plan. And according to a really great article in Military History by Stephen Jarvis, Lord Bacon said of the march into Yorkshire, quote, their snowball did not gather as it went. And he also said that um, Englishmen didn't, quote, care to have a king brought into them upon the shoulders of Irish and Dutch. So that might have been a pretty big oversight on Lincoln and Lovell's part. But the king wasn't really doing so well with support either at that point. He was trying to rally people, and the rebels actually got five days to hunker down before the royalist supporters got there to challenge them in the first place. His main allies, the king's main allies at this point, are Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, and Henry Lord Clifford. But he's later joined by George Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury, George Lord Strange, and John Cheney in Nottingham. So... These captains, they add a lot of men. So things start to look up gradually for him. They add about 6,000 men, and just in time since the rebels have come through Sherwood Forest. Yeah, so the battle finally goes down on June 16th, and it's just outside the village of Stoke-on-Trent, thus the Battle of Stokefield. That's what it's called. It's 9,000 rebels versus 15,000 royalists, and the mercenary Schwartz knows that it's not looking very good for them. You know, they really didn't get the English support they needed to 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 truly fight. And he says to Lincoln, quote, Sir, now I see well that ye have deceived yourself and also me, but that notwithstanding, all such promise as I made unto my lady the Duchess I shall perform. 
So the, quote, beggarly and naked Irish are a reserve. We called them rabble earlier. But just guys who are not really very skilled fighters, certainly not. It's not an army. Yeah, they're not an army. They're not well-equipped soldiers. They make up the reserve. The Germans lead a charge. And they do this because they don't have archers. And Schwartz knows that the English do. And if they end up on this prolonged fight, the... The rebels will will surely lose, and it, it this tactic does work for a minute. This this charge, it's scary. There are all these <laughs> German guys with twenty foot pikes, and some of the English, especially those who are not quite as battle trained, start to flee and break up. But the English regroup, they get it together again, and their weapons are superior, especially when it comes to hand to hand combat. The twenty foot pikes, I mean, that's great charging down the hill, but maybe a little awkward when you're fighting in the thick of things. Um, the Irish try to retreat over the ridge because they really don't have good weaponry at all. And the battle, according to Stephen Jarvis, becomes, quote, butchery pretty quickly. Yeah, 4,000 Irish were killed trying to cross the Trent, which is still called the Red Gutter. Some mercenaries, they die fighting. Pretty much all of them, right? Many. Yeah, well, I mean, they're they're trained guys and they know... It's what they gotta do. Mm-hmm. Honorable thing. Lincoln and the Irishman Thomas Fitzgerald are killed in battle, but Lovell's body is never found. And this part I find really fascinating. He could he have escaped across the Trent? You know, no one knows what happened to him, but it's likely that he probably drowned. But here's the catch: later in the 18th century, there was a secret chamber found in Lovell's ancestral home, and there was a skeleton inside that secret chamber, seated at a table. Yeah, not just lying down, Mm-mm. seated at a table. That's really weird. And, I mean, obviously, we don't know if that is Lovell himself, but definitely a strange note to mention. So with the end of the battle, it's the end of the Wars of the Roses, and the Yorkist leaders are buried with green willow staves driven through their hearts, really kind of a grisly thing to do. Henry VII loses 3,000 men, but none of them are nobles or gentlemen. Um, I mean, poor other guys, but I guess that's of note for him that he's not losing his, his captains in case he's got to keep fighting later. And then a few days after this, he's in Lincoln and he publicly executes the surviving rebels to really make a point, you know, I'm the king now, don't try any of this. But remarkably, some of our main characters from this podcast are not in that group of executed rebels. Some of the main players, actually. Yeah, Earl of Kildare, for example, he ends up spending a spell in the tower, but is eventually pardoned. He even gets back his post as Lord Deputy and is essentially the power broker between the Gaelic and the Anglo-Irish lords. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about him in a minute. The priest, Richard Simmons, is sentenced to life in prison. He's probably saved because he is a priest. And even little Lambert Simnel gets a job. I guess Henry VII just realizes he's not a threat on his own. He was a puppet. He's just a little boy. He's put to work in the royal kitchen, <laughs> which Dublino was saying that, that sounded like a better job than being a royal pretender in the first place. Yeah, totally. I mean, as you pointed out in earlier in the podcast, if he had, if it worked, if their scheme had worked, he probably would have been disposed of yeah. pretty soon. So I think being a 
being a chef, a royal chef, sounds a lot better than that. Well, he even gets a promotion. He does. He gets promoted to Royal Falconer, and he lives to age 50. Which is a remarkable age, considering he is a known Tudor trader. I mean, 50. That's amazing that that he's allowed to live and that he he doesn't get into any more trouble. Lives a long, happy life. Good for Good for Lambert. Yeah, little Lambert is kind of the winner in this story. Ireland is unfortunately not, and that's because Ireland's participation in the rebellion left a really bad taste in Henry's mouth, especially when just a few years later, there's yet another prince in the tower poser, pretender, who pops up, Perkin Warbeck, who's in Cork, and again, he's championed by these Yorkists in Ireland, and while this attempt, uh, or this rebellion doesn't really come to battle like the other one did. It really kind of posed a more serious threat than than Lambert's rebellion, partly because Warbeck's friends included people like James IV of Scotland and the French king and the Habsburgs. He had some real weight behind him. So after that, Henry VII gets rid of Kildare, got his job back, but ends up losing his job again, and he puts an Englishman in the de facto position of power in Ireland, and that is Sir Edward Poynings. While at his post, Poynings strips Ireland of all their independence, and he summons an Irish parliament at Drogheda, making it pass legislation that all future decisions would need approval from English Privy Council. Yeah, so a pretty bad deal for Ireland. It was called Poynings Law, and it wasn't repealed until 1782. It it meant, of course, that the Irish Parliament was no longer independent. And, of course, you know, I mean, probably most of you have have covered a little bit of the Tudor... Tudor-Irish relations, and we're not going to get into all of that, but the English Reformation only stirred up the violence, and Henry IV, of course, abolished the monasteries and established the Church of Ireland, and there were three Irish rebellions under Elizabeth I. I was actually originally thinking of doing a podcast on one of those, but I couldn't pick between between the three, and I thought it might be even a, a more tragic St. Patrick's Day subject than, than this one. Since this one, at least there's little Lambert. Yeah, Lambert, I guess, could be the uplifting part for this yeah, but, <laughs> particular I mean, one. Ultimately, I think this is a really interesting story because it it's most famous for wrapping up one era, the War of the Roses, and it it's the end of the York cause because, of course, Henry VII, once he starts having sons, he's pretty much entrenched. You know, the the people stop really thinking so much about having yet another war and a new king and and starting all over again. Um, But while it was wrapping up that time period, it it really started another one in Ireland. And I thought that Dale Hoke for the American Historical Review put it really nicely. He wrote, quote, the issue at Stoke transcended the fate of Lancaster and York. Was it not really a question of the relation of Ireland to England? So, I mean, I think that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, it definitely sums up the significance of this moment, so to speak, and opens up a whole other can of worms that we can explore in future podcasts, too. It does. Well, I guess that about wraps it up for young Lambert Snell, but it does bring us to listener mail. So this email is from Hannah, and I really like the subject line, too. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Y'all are mind readers. 
always like to hear that, right? <laughs> um, she wrote to us, I'm a high school senior and a devoted listener to Stuff You Missed in History Class, which has come in handy a number of times by filling me in on stuff I actually did miss in history class. In fact, for the past several months, almost every time I have a test on something, a podcast has come out on a related helpful subject. This has been especially useful for AP Art History. We learned about Rococo art and what did I see on iTunes, a series about the Bourbons who started Rococo art. Now we are about to take a unit test that includes the Baroque period, and suddenly you send me a podcast about Caravaggio. I don't know what this strange connection is, but I appreciate you helping me out in class, and it would be really great great if we could keep up our awesome mind link because I think it is significantly improving my grades. Hint, next unit is about impressionism, post-impressionism. So, <laughs> wow. I have to say I did totally almost do a podcast or suggest a podcast on Degas when we were thinking of New Orleans related stories Uh-oh. since he spent some time in New Orleans. So maybe maybe we are mind readers <laughs> in fact. I hope it's not too late for you, Hannah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, it's always great to hear that we're helping somebody improve their grades. I mean, come on. Who doesn't like to hear something like that? Definitely. Now, if only we could apply the mind reading to other areas of our lives. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that would be helpful. It would be. So if you have any podcast subjects that you think would help boost your grades, and um, unfortunately, they're probably going to have to interest us, too, if we're <laughs> going to cover them, um, still send them our way. We're at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us on Facebook, and you can find us on Twitter at Missed in History. And yeah, I guess I just want to wish everyone a happy St. Patrick's Day. Have a great time celebrating however however you do. And um, we also have blogs at HowStuffWorks.com. And I know last year, Molly from Stuff Mom Never Told You wrote a post on how to catch a leprechaun. So, I mean, that's really useful information. I'm sure the tips are still valid. Yeah. If, if you can find it on the blogs, I know it's still there. And uh, do that by going over to our homepage at www.HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? 
All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.